Welcome back to part two of this episode. I really hope you enjoyed part one. Now let's get back into it. How do you feel that whole experience would have been if you had been already diagnosed with type 1? I'd be dead. I can tell you right now I would be dead. I have thought about this so many times and I honestly believe that God, the universe, whatever you believe in, 100% did not tip me over until I was in this position, not just physically, but psychologically to deal with it. I I just, it's honestly the grace of God because there's no reason that shouldn't have happened. And in fact, like my endo has said to me, shit, because I mean, people go into, into, you know, can tip over to diabetes from excessive alcohol consumption. And that didn't happen. Everything was showing normally. In fact, I didn't even know that I had, you know, uh, I hadn't done any testing to to indicate that I was genetically already somewhere sitting in there waiting to tip over. I, we did that later on, clearly. But, um, yeah, I would be dead because there's no way I would have managed that. I don't even know that that would have been enough for me at that point in time to go, okay, well, I need to, now need to change. I now need to get sober. I needed to go through what I, you know, those other really low points for that to happen. So, yeah, I, it would have been messy. And psychologically, there's no way I would have had the capacity to deal with that. Yeah, I always say there's there's never a perfect time to be diagnosed, but that probably actually was the perfect time for you to be diagnosed in hindsight. Well, yeah, and, you know, and when I was eventually diagnosed, I'd had, you know, a lot of years with, you know, with my daughter being diagnosed, so I, I knew what to do. <laughs> it was It was not... It was not new and I was probably in the best stead psychologically. It still hit me like a ton of bricks, but but to, to cope with it, definitely. And physically, my God. Yeah, like, you know, my, my, my blood's apart from the diabetes. I, I don't think I've ever been healthier. <laughs> you were just being misdiagnosed as a type 2 for like, over three months, I believe. Uh, so it was actually you know- probably slightly longer. Look, I went to, when I uh, I had some surgery, and I had some surgery, and they uh, I was having some complications afterwards, and they ran my bloods, and they're like, "Oh shit, why is your morning sugars that high?" Um, and then I, they did my HbA1c, and it was bordering. Well, I was actually showing I was diabetic, and. Um, they to begin with they thought mm, this because it actually showed I don't know why but it was showing that I had signs of some kind of pancreatic infection which was bizarre which went away very quickly I now sometimes wonder whether it was a surgery that tipped me over in fact it probably was but um, yeah so my GP <laughs> I, I went in there with a plethora of knowledge about type one and I said to my GP. He said, Justine, you're diabetic and you're type 2 diabetic. And I said, I'm not type 2 diabetic. I said, you, you know me. He, he's the one that put me in rehab and he knows my, my entire story. And I said, look at me. I am not type 2 diabetic. You know that. And I knew a little bit. I had a friend who had what, you know, they were calling then type 1.5 or LADA. And, and I said, well, 
maybe I'm 1.5. He's like, what's (laughs) (laughs) 1.5? And I was going, oh, my God, Google, just Google, you know, if I know more about it than you. (laughs) And look, there were, so to begin with, and I wasn't, my, my levels were showing relatively normal. Well, they, were, they weren't quite within range, but I was not, I, I was clearly now in hindsight in very much honeymoon period. So they put me on metformin, on medication. Mm. Um, and then I went to an endo, my first endo, who just didn't really even run many tests on me. I wouldn't say he was the best endo in the world. And he said, no, nah, look, I'm actually happy for you to just stay on the meds for now. And I just didn't feel right. I didn't feel right. And then I saw another endo who um, ran some more tests and I was GAD positive. And he's like, Can I just jump in, Justine? When you say you didn't feel right, obviously if you were type 1 and your body essentially was being forced to try and rely on metformin, what did not feeling right actually feel like? I knew that I couldn't, I was actually quite anxious and quite angsty and, you know, I wasn't testing all the time then because they said not to as well, but I was testing more than what they'd told me to. And I was eating and seeing an immediate, you know, spike and just feeling quite angsty, which now I know is my, 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 you know, clearly my blood, my, my blood sugars were high from time to time, but this spike where I didn't feel great, um, the medication didn't make me feel great and I just instinctively knew this this is not a correct diagnosis and I think I, I knew what that meant, that if I was tested properly that I would have to go on to insulin therapy and maybe a little part of me was delaying that myself as well. So, but I eventually did, and this this one doctor ran, you know, ran the tests, and it was GAD positive. And then I found a new endo, and he said, "Why the hell have you been on metformin? You you're GAD positive." And he said to me, "Jesus, your daughter's type one. You are type one. Like anybody who's you know of any ilk in terms of a specialist has got to put you know one plus one together and equals two. So you're not type two. You never have been. You're a very, very late diagnosis type one. And, you know, he now says to me that there are loads of different, you know, they're coming up with all of these different versions of type one. They just require different, you know, different therapies or different insulin doses more than anything. Was there then a sense of relief finally getting this type 1 diagnosis after, you know, a six-month-ish period of not knowing, essentially, and also being on metformin and not feeling right? And they actually put me on another med before that, that I had a really <laughs> severe, I was on, it's called Phyrexidure, I think it's called, um, just takes the, the glucose from you and, and straight out through your kidney, you pee, just pee it out. And I was really sick on that. Um, the diagnosis, no. I have to say that I really, I did have a, a, um, a very brief period of feeling extremely sorry for myself. And I didn't really... I didn't like that because I, I, I was, that was a real challenge because I was like, you know, why are you feeling sorry for yourself when you've been managed to go 44 years without it? 
yet your daughter has, who's, you know, was at the time maybe 16 or 15 or something, has had it since she's seven. So I actually felt guilty for feeling sad for myself. Mm. So I didn't probably grieve very much. Look, physically I felt better as soon as I got on insulin. Physically I felt better, but I definitely still had then a, a quite a, a yucky kind of short period psychologically because it's, you know, as you said, there's never a good time to get it. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's great that I, I've gone 44 years without it, but I've also gone 44 years without it, so I'm very used to not having it. <laughs> yeah. So, so and, and again, that's a constant debate that I have on this podcast in terms of people who are diagnosed later in life feel that, you know, because they were diagnosed later in life, they're happy enough to be diagnosed later in life and they can't almost even comprehend being diagnosed earlier. Mm. But I suppose the negative side of that, like I would consider myself being diagnosed at 19 relatively late mm. obviously you're later mm. how did you find adjusting to as we both know the the diabetic life after 44 years of not having it look I will say that I am so thankful that my lifestyle is probably the most beneficial way that a di- type 1 diabetic can live so I don't drink I exercise, ex, you know, more than regularly. Um, my, I know a lot about nutrition. So I was well equipped to deal with this at that level. I was really well equipped. And I'd also had, you know, whatever, 10 years with, with my daughter. So I knew all about it. So the actual practical part of it for me I was fortunate. It was actually relatively bloody simple. And I even knew how to dose myself. Like I I knew ratios. I'd been carb counting for years. So the adjustment for somebody who'd not had that exposure was completely different to mine because I'd lived and breathed it with Evie and then I was already living this optimal type 1 lifestyle. So, Mm. you know, (laughs) God really did throw it down at the right time. Yeah. How did your daughter react to it? Interesting. So when I was first diagnosed, I also had um, another, um, I guess, almost it wasn't a relapse of guilt, but I was like, shit, I actually am the genetic link of why, uh, of where it came. That's what I was told then. They said, you know, you are the genetic link to Evie. You've always been um, and you've, you know, you've, you've passed this on. Um, unknowingly, and then I felt guilt about that because <laughs> when it was some random in the family that we didn't know um, potentially or or it's, you know, I don't know, it's just come out of thin air, it was kind of easier to, to deal with but it's like, mm, yeah, actually that was me. Um, <laughs> so there was a little bit of guilt around that. But you know what? She would have to have been my, still is, my biggest supporter and she was like, you know what, Mum? you're not alone. Now we, cause I always used to say to her, this is when she was very little, this is not your illness. This is ours. And it's not an illness. We deal with this as a family. So she never felt unsupported ever, ever, ever from a, from a young age. And she basically turned around and said exactly the same thing to me. Remember, this is not your issue. 
this is all of ours and we will help you through it. So um, it's, I felt extremely supported, you know, she was, yeah, I, I had, we were all of a sudden type one buddies. <laughs> I remember I still got on video my first injection and I'm like, I, I fucking hate needles. And, you know, I've watched her do it the whole time. And they're like, I've got my kids there and my husband like, come on, come on, come on, you can do it. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, so it was, it was a family, it was a family affair, which it had been with her as well. Hmm. It's certainly not the uh, the best condition to have if you're afraid of needles, Justine. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but then once I once I'd done one, I'm like, oh my god, my f- finger pricks are worse than the needles. So it was all right. <laughs> it was just that initial anxiety, but yeah, that quickly subsided. <laughs> Do you feel, in a way, it made your and your daughter's relationship even stronger? Yeah, I think we were always pretty tight, but yeah, we we've, we've got a connection on that level now that will that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, not, not through the best circumstances, but definitely, mm. definitely. Yeah. This is actually a question that I wanted to ask you as well is like the way I always look at type one and I'm sure anybody listening can probably agree unless you actually live with it, it's very, very difficult to understand the true complexity of it and what, what it's actually like day to day over that 24 hour period every single day mm-hmm. did your opinion or perspective of diabetes change justine after being diagnosed even though you had been living with your daughter with it for so many years so, such a good question oh, it's such a good question because absolutely so i remember i would say to you know as a mum you know eva would get to uh, you know like maybe when she was she, – she's been on a pump for a good amount of time now, but even prior to that she'd wake up and, I don't know, we'd be out and it'd be 11 o'clock and she'd test her sugars and she's like 15. And, and I'm like, how can you be 15? You know, and she said, oh, shit. She goes, I oh, forgot to have insulin with my breakfast. And I would be like, are you kidding? You have type 1 diabetes. You know, she was clearly not a child at that point. I'm like, how can you bloody forget to have your insulin? Or however many times I'm like, did you actually test yourself today? Oh, but I was busy doing this, this. And I'm like, Evie, you have, you have a serious condition that you can't just, you know, you can't let it, let it go like that. I don't understand why you're not on top of it all of the time. And, you know, things would go wrong. I'm like, what did you do? What, how did that happen? And now, oh, my God, oh, my God. The, I remember the first time where I'm like, I actually can't be bothered testing myself today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I totally get it. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just want to forget that it's there. And I totally, I, 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 I get it. I get it even from a psychological perspective. I get it from just not knowing, knowing that it can be that random. Um, you know, it's, it is, to, I have a newfound respect and definitely a much better indication of, of what it's, well, clearly what it's like to live with it 24-7. And I almost, I feel, I feel awful for all of those times where I questioned her, um, her commitment almost to a tight one because I certainly have times now where I'm not, I'm exactly the same. She's far better than me. She's the one that getting 5.96, you know, HbA1Cs and I'm, 
I'm dragging along a little bit at the moment and probably making excuses for it. So, yeah, definitely, definitely Mm. didn't understand the intricacies um, on all levels until I experienced it myself. I thought I did, but I didn't. Mm. Yeah, I was curious to get your perspective on that because, like, I've spoken to hundreds of diabetics over the years and a common theme that kind of flows or echoes through a lot of the conversations that I've had is this idea that the person who's living with type one just doesn't necessarily feel as if they're being kind of truly understood in relation to the extent or the the complexity of the condition. So the way I always look at it is the people who don't have diabetes, but have the closest understanding to it are parents of diabetic children because they have such a massive responsibility and they're constantly involved. So I was very interested to understand whether or not your opinion had changed and it clearly has. Mm-hmm. It has. And, you know, look, when, 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 she was, when she was little, I guess, you know, you most certainly felt the depths of her, her despair and her wanting to fit in and, and, and things being different. But I felt it as a parent, not as a diabetic myself. So that was, it's a different kind of empathy that you have. Mm. So, yeah, it, it was extraordinary. There was a, a ton of epiphanies when I was diagnosed and I did, I felt, I felt guilty for having been, having, I guess, had that judgment because I was experiencing something that was, you know, well, I was experiencing what she was experiencing and just I had a good understanding of why she may have made those decisions or didn't make decisions. Yeah. What do dinner times look like in your household, just being <laughs> two type one diabetics? Uh, well, apart from the fact that we're all ships in the night at the moment, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's look, it's 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 just second nature, you know. Mm. Uh, it's it's now we don't almost we don't we don't think about it, um, you know. I'll I think I I know that I her and I play. Um, I definitely confide in her more or talk to her more about my diabetes than I do anybody else in this house. And, you know, I'll go in and I'll say, shit, Eve, I'm 18 and I, I don't really know what I've done or I've, you know. So I guess we, we both, we have, her and I definitely go through the motions together. But dinner time in our house is, you know, not different to any any other household except there's a lot of, I'm still on pens, she's got a pump and it, and uh, Dexcom and she's she's a, a walking robot and I'm still old-fashioned <laughs> I haven't quite um made the made the trip across yet but that's that's another that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> mm. <laughs> you yeah. are quite clearly somebody who is massively involved in health and fitness Justine and obviously yeah. that in itself is a huge or has a huge role to play in diabetes management is there any one habit or routine that you have found to be stand out the most beneficial for your management strength training definitely mm. so weight training I knew you'd say that <laughs> yeah definitely weight training is uh, i find that my my levels are way more stable overall um mm. they definitely are um 
I don't do a lot of cardio. I don't love a lot of cardio, but I also <laughs> know that in terms of management, I'm a lot more, um, yeah, it's a lot more up and down and all over the place with cardio. It's a, it takes a lot more to manage for me. Mm. Um, look, and there's other, you know, small little hacks. For, I, I know that I'm actually way better training fasted. Uh, not always ideal for strength training, but I, I tend to, my blood sugars are a lot more stable if, if I'm not having insulin before I train, you know, or mm. if I'm going to do strength training, I have a very small amount. But if I'm having a feed and I'm having insulin at the same time before, you know, before I go into a strength session, I can't, I, it's not as predictable. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I think train and fast is, is like if it's something somebody can do, it's such a beneficial way to just take out the complications because yeah. you're not considering the food I've eaten. Am I going to spike the insulin that I have active in my system? Am I going to drop it? Just as you say yourself, hitting the nail on the head, it just makes your bloods more predictable. Yeah. yeah. I am somebody who consistent. I, I spent a couple of years consistently only training fasted and yeah. I was fine, but there are other people who can't even comprehend the thought of training yeah. fast because oh, they, look, have, they have to have something yeah it's a that's a, i think that's just a learnt thing really your body adapts um you know that's not always the case but the time of the day that i train i don't know i've become quite adjusted to it and you know i'll just give myself half a unit just to you know compensate for whatever i'm going to spike slightly when i'm when i'm strength training but it's um yeah it's definitely makes life more predictable hmm. can you give me a brief example of what a typical week of training might look like for you yeah um at the moment i'm i'm doing four to five strength sessions a week and they i tend to i'm a bit of an old school when it comes to how i train um but i'll i'll hit legs twice a week and then two upper body sessions and if i get a fifth session in i'll usually do an upper and lower body um and it is very traditional weight um you know strength training <laughs> i do you know sort of back and buys shoulders and tries <laughs> that sort of thing um yeah. it's I, I i like training that way i i go to um i have actually competed in the in the past um you know doing fitness comps so it's just a style of training that, that seems to suit me. Um, and, yeah, so that's I do that five days a week. Uh, I don't do any traditional cardio as such, you know, when the weather's great here, which is usually most of the time, just not this year here in, in Australia without exorbitant amount of rain. Um, I will walk the beach a couple of times a week as well. So I call that the incidental cardio. That's that's more for my head more than anything. And I'm just active. I, I, I'm on I'm on the go. I move a lot. So you know, if I look at my my um my watch, I've probably done you know you know at least twelve thousand steps every day, if not more, mm-hmm. just from incidental stuff, not from anything out of the ordinary. If I had my way, I would have every single person living with type one diabetes doing strength training strength or resistance training is just invaluable to your blood oh, sugar yeah it so and is it's and i've said it on this podcast a couple of times before but when anybody is diagnosed it should be here's your insulin pen here's your glucose monitor and here's a dumbbell 
Uh, yeah, I love that. It, I love that. <laughs> it's almost as beneficial as the two latter things. You oh, know? Look, the days that I don't, you know, it's, it's, it has such an impact. The days mm. that I don't train and I'm sitting down all day in front of a computer, I 100% need way more insulin than what I do on yeah. the days that I don't. And, you know, I've actually seen, so when I was first diagnosed, I saw exercise as part of my insulin therapy. And I think that's, that's how I still look at it. The more I train and the, the more efficient I am with my training, the less ins- insulin I will need. And at the end of the day, I'd like to be giving myself less insulin. Mm. Well, again, like you said, if you're, if you're more insulin sensitive, inevitably you're taking less insulin and inevitably again, your bloods are going to be more predictable as a result. Yeah. yeah. I've heard you, Justine, speaking of your kind of non-negotiables and I'm a big, big, big advocate for non-negotiables and keeping things as predictable as possible, regardless of what you're doing. Can you give me a couple examples of what your non-negotiables are? Non-negotiables are definitely uh, moving or exercising in some shape or form every day, unless there is something that's completely out of the ordinary, got to move, just have to move because that's for my head more than anything. Uh, you know, forget about the diabetes, forget about any aesthetic kind of, uh, I'll call that a bonus. Um, I need, I need to, I need to train. That's a non-negotiable or I need to be active. It could be a walk or something like that. Um, definitely getting adequate sleep. You know, I can push the, push the boundaries a little bit with that one or two nights occasionally, but I need to get good quality sleep that straight away will affect my blood sugar levels anyway. Hmm. Um, That's a non-negotiable. And just doing things that keep me, um, my mental health at, you know, in good stead, which really is (laughs) there two of them as it is. Uh, but, But eating well and making sure I'm getting good nutrition, and that doesn't mean, you know, eating the the most organic clean foods all of the time it just means having a good um I guess relatively good control over what I'm putting into my body in terms of nutrition in terms of calories um you know all of that kind of thing so you know it's almost I've kind of mentioned it before didn't I eat train sleep they're my three, they're, they're my foundations and then they're, they're non-negotiables for mm. sure. And I think even the two that stand out to me the most, obviously, and they both have such a significant impact on blood sugar and mood overall are the sleep, as you say, and the non-negotiable movement. Mm. And the two of those factors greatly increase your mood and your energy. And mm. As we both know, and as anyone else listening knows, diabetes is just as much emotional and mental. And if you're in a better mental headspace, mm-hmm. you're just going to be able to deal with all the physical factors a lot easier. Oh, yeah. And and they're, they're, you're so right. They're so triggered. Like I, uh, you know, hormone sensitive really, isn't it? And mm. I, I can I can watch my sugars. If I, I'm, I could be sitting there nicely at six and if I become extremely stressed give me 10 minutes and I'll be 15 
that's how that's how quickly it can happen so I know that not only do I need to keep you know do all the things that keep my mental health well for my mental health but I need to do that for my physical health because I'm seeing firsthand exactly how my body is reacting to my stress to uh, someone who's not a type one can't see that (laughs) they don't they don't have that you know brilliant firsthand information from a, a glucose monitor showing you know well that hopefully there's not going to get to 15 that quickly but that's how quickly our bodies react mm. yeah and it's it's almost like that sudden realization you get of the impact that stress can actually have and oh. there was a time recently where i was incredibly stressed for like a week straight and i was just taking so much insulin because my bloods were just consistently high yeah and nothing had changed physically in terms of my routine or my schedule or my eating habits or my exercise habits I was just incredibly stressed Mm, yeah scary isn't it (laughs) pumping insulin into me pumping it in yeah um it's fascinating it is and look you know um it's a whole nother conversation but hormones have have made a, a massive difference for me too um you know it's it's it it impacts everything significantly I almost feel as if I'm kind of sitting in a luxurious position, not having to worry about hormones as mm-hmm. much as a female <laughs> diabetic because it's complicated enough as it is, let alone throwing in all those additional complications. So I uh, I understand, but don't understand at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, totally get that. Totally get that. <laughs> I have one more question for you, Justine, and it's yeah. a bit of a random one. But I always like finishing guest episodes with this. And it is, if you had the opportunity to thank your diabetes for something, what would that be? (sighs) Probably for giving me another reason to continue with this lifestyle that I have I have already commenced or I, I am on. It's given me another reason to stay sober. So I had, you know, <laughs> clearly I had, a, I had reasons beforehand, but it's another big prominent part of why I need to keep myself in check and why I need to continue on this path that I'm on now. Um, you know, <laughs> Throw me a bit more adversity. I've had a little bit, um, but you know, I can. I guess it's also. I, I, I've. I, I could thank it also for for making me realise that I still I do actually have an ability to to cope with and 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 conquer. I guess um, things that come up that that are challenging and that you know, with a clear state of mind and a good, strong physical representation, I can, I can, I'll take it on and I, and I'll do, I'll do well with it. So yeah, it's done a lot of reinforcing that I'm already on the right track. Love that. Great answer. Mm. You are a incredibly thick skinned person, Justine. I appreciate this conversation. <laughs> oh, I'm, really so, I'm super soft too. I'm actually super <laughs> soft, but um, yeah, I can switch it on and off. <laughs> yeah. Justine, where can people find out more about you, your book and your other extremely helpful resources? Um, 
Instagram is just with church with two two S's uh, or I can go to my website which is justinewitchurch.com.au um, my book you can order it from there or alternatively it's available on Amazon as well sobriety delivered everything alcohol promised great stuff and I will link everything below if you have not followed Justine up to this point make sure you do She'll make you feel very weak if you don't go to the gym just yet. But it's a super social page to follow and keep up to date with. And it just perfectly outlines how you can take back control of what you want to take back control of. And you're the epitome of that, Justine. So I appreciate your time. Really enjoyed this call. Awesome. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Absolutely. A pleasure. Take care. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Another massive thank you to today's guest. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out their social channels and links that we've included in the episode description. If you enjoy the podcast, which I'm guessing you do because you listen, be sure to rate, subscribe and share. It really, really helps the podcast get heard by more people when you rate, when you subscribe and when you share. If you feel that you've been able to benefit from it so far, likely someone else would be too. If you have any questions or stories for myself and Graham, please do not hesitate to reach out. We absolutely love getting in the email stories and questions. You can do this through theinsalonepodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to learn more from me, stay connected or even work with me and other people living with type 1 diabetes who want to be fitter, healthier and happier within my type 1% better online program. You can message me directly through Instagram or you can fill out an application form through the link in the podcast description. And as always, another massive thank you to you for your time and your ears. We greatly appreciate you showing up each week, time after time, ready to gain knowledge and confidence around your diabetes management. So until next week, have a good day, have a good week, look after those blood sugars and I'll chat to you soon. Take it easy.